Hey, hello, hi, welcome to and are back to the Equitheory podcast. I am your host, Jill Therese, and on this week's episode, we will be continuing and finishing the Beginner's Guide to Positive Reinforcement Training. This is part four in the series, in which I will be discussing some miscellaneous things. Some of it might be a recap, and some of it... Um, I have not said yet. So I am hoping that this episode will kind of answer any final remaining questions and, um, you know, supply some additional um, things to consider when you go about starting this new journey with your pony. Uh, So we're going to be doing troubleshooting in this episode. So I'm going to talk about what can go wrong with the basics, the things that affect the trainer, loopy training, problems with lumping, and, um, you know, all of the issues that can come with using food reinforcers and how you can avoid those with your horse. Um, The best way to teach a horse how you want them to behave around food or to get rid of any undesirable behaviors for you as the human um, is to use food. You can't learn math without having the math. So I think that the best way to teach a horse how to behave around food is to use it strategically in a safe way that um, educates the horse so that they are set up for success. So I'm going to talk all about that, um, a brief overview of some body language things and how to recognize slash what to do when your horse says no. And um, what do you do if your horse doesn't seem like they're getting it? And some other, you know, wrap up thoughts and some things that are additional considerations. So I think with that, we can go ahead and roll the music and get into this bad boy. What do you say? You say yes? Okay, three, two, one, go. So this week's little ad slot is a little bit different because we officially have our first actual sponsor that is not me. Um, so I am happy to introduce you guys to Tista and Charlotte from Heart Horse, and I'm going to let them take the reins and explain a little bit more about their business and what they can offer you and your horse. Hey, Equitheory listeners. This is Tista and Charlotte of Heart Horse. We're two best friends who love horses just like you. But we know how hard it can be to connect to other equestrians and find the friendships we dreamed about when we were young, horse-crazy kids. That's why we founded Heart Horse, a space to celebrate and support you on your horsemanship journey. Think of it as self-care for equestrians. In the Heart Horse herd, you will fill yourself up so you can bring your best to your horse. You will explore how horses enrich your life and connect you to yourself. And you'll find authentic support from other horse lovers outside the noisy world of social media. We know that you're already taking amazing care of your horse, and we're here to make sure you're doing the same for yourself. Cowgirl up on your self-love by opting to receive our Heart Horse Box, a bi-monthly mailer curated for the heart-minded horse lover. Membership starts at just $20 a month. Go to hearthorsebox.com and use the code EQUITHEORY for 25% off your first month of membership. Don't they just make you want to cozy up next to the fire and meditate a little bit? I just, I love the way they talk. It's it's so calming and serene. So anyway, I, I think it's, I don't know, it's just, it's heartwarming to me. But 
if you want to listen to them talk a little bit more, they have their own podcast called Heart Horse. So be sure to check that out as well. And I have some things of my own that I need to talk about here first before we get into the episode. So of course, you can check out our merch. I did a bunch of photo shoots this past weekend. Um, I did lots of outfit changes. Oh my God. <laughs> um, to get ready to post them on my website and have some, you know, promo content for myself because I tend to promo other people's products and I don't have any pictures of my own. So I decided to get that done and I'm working my way through editing them. So hopefully you guys will be able to see those soon. Keep a lookout on my Instagram. And if you would like to have some Jet Equitheory or Equitheory podcast merch of your own, you can head on over to teespring.com and search up Jet Equitheory or you can go to the shop and or merch link on my website, and which is jetequitheory.com, and check that out, and it'll take you there from that page. Coincidentally, Jet Equitheory being my website is also full of book resources, online classes, and just a, a hub of resources. That's what I've designed it to be because I found it very difficult in the beginning of my positive reinforcement, wanting to delve deeper into horse psychology and all that good stuff and behavior mod. So I I found it very difficult to pull all the information together. So I created a website where I would just plug in everything that I found to make it easier for you guys and uh, people that want to know more. So be sure to check that out, jetequitheory.com. And the last thing that I want to talk about here, you can find under the services tab on my website, um, which is my Patreon. And I use Patreon as sort of a jumping off consultation place. So uh, you can set whatever amount you would like to do when you join. It's at the very bottom of the page. Um, so you can just pick a number if you would like to just donate. But if you want to join the tiers and reap the benefits, then uh, it starts at the $5 tier in which you can ask me one question. I'll answer it live on the podcast. And, you know, you just have to let me know whether you want me to keep it anonymous or want me to say your name. And I will follow suit. Also, be sure to include your pronouns because I, I want to, you know, be respectful and make you feel comfy. So then we have the $10 tier where you can ask me any number of questions you want um, and some other benefits that I cannot think of off the top of my head right now. This is a terrible ad read. Um, but then we move into the $20, $25, and $30 tier, and those offer different benefits, including um, a private phone call consult, um, public phone call consult, uh, where I will record your conversation with me, and we will post it on the podcast. And that way, the listeners can hear us work through the issues, and you can get one-on-one -on -one advice from me while you're able to respond. And yeah, and it might help somebody else. So up to you, you would have it for life. And then at the $35 tier, you can send me up to 30 minutes of footage per month, you can break it up however you want, five minutes at a time, seven minutes at a time, um, whatever, whatever you want. Um, if you think about it, it's much cheaper than doing, you know, two lessons a week at 30 to $70. Have four times a month. So, you know, I, I just, you know, I can't, I can't help you out if you want. Um, or you are more than welcome to just join the Patreon and support and not use any of those benefits. I would greatly appreciate that as well. Uh, the last little benefit that you get is the access to our Equitheory Discord community. And it's essentially like a Facebook group, sort of, but better. So we have all sorts of different channels within the server. So we have behavior, video analysis, 
um, regular people things, even a bullet journaling <laughs> one. Uh, and it's just full of like-minded people that listen to the podcast and want to talk about horses and cats and bullet journals and all sorts of things all in one place. So I think it's pretty dope and you get access to it if you join the podcast uh, Patreon. So that is an option available to you. And I think that wraps up my little advertisement segment here. Sorry that took so long. I promise next week I'm going to set this. Next week I will have a pre-recorded one that I can plug in here that is much more concise. Um, so anyway, let's get into the content that you are here for, my friends. Troubleshooting. What can go wrong when you start training with positive reinforcement? When you start out first and you're working through the basics, there, there's a lot of room for error, mostly because it is the long abhorred green on green situation. You know, they always say green on green equals black and blue. And when you are a green trainer training a green horse, then, you know, you have a high propensity for issues. And this podcast episode is here to attempt to help you mitigate those. So, you know, you almost can't help it right now, uh, given the state of things, because there aren't too many positive reinforcement trainers out there. There are a lot, but they're kind of sporadic and they're certainly not as common as your, um, you know, your traditional trainers that train for specific disciplines and competition and things like that. So when you go to a riding school, most people don't use clicker training and positive reinforcement. Some do, but not a lot. So, you know, you almost have to teach yourself. An alternative solution is joining an online training program like Adele Shaw at the Willing Equine. She offers online training where um, you join a group, you can take her foundations course, and you can send her videos and get one-on-one -on -one training with her. I offer that to a less organized degree <laughs> on my Patreon, and you can do that at the $35 a month tier, pay that and um, receive training advice. So if you send me a video, I will review it and send you feedback, some suggestions. Uh, and, you know, we can discuss what you want to do, where you want to go, what you're having issues with, that sort of thing. Um, and I know that there are many more trainers. I actually should probably make a, a trainer tab on my website now that I think about it. Um, that would be helpful for people, I think. But, uh, you know, I think that it's, it's largely self-taught because a lot of people are like, I don't want to do online training, which is, it seems counterintuitive to me because at least you're getting something, even though I'm being a hypocrite because I don't, I'm not currently any in any online training programs, but I really do recommend it, especially when you're just starting out. Uh, I guess that's not entirely true. I, Adele mentored me big time in the beginning and I literally would be nowhere <laughs> without her. And I'm hoping to have her on the podcast very soon, uh, which will be absolute and pure chaos because both of us tangent like no other. Um, it makes for great conversation and we definitely cover all the bases, but um, it will be a long one. <laughs> I'm warning you, but I'm really excited to, to do that soon. But back to the point here, uh, speaking of tangents. So, you know, it's tricky when you first start, because like I said, you're most of you out there who have either done this or are going to do this, you have had to learn on your own. And it involves a lot of book reading, a lot of watching online videos, and a lot of um, reading articles and things like that. So there's a lot to be said for book learning. 
And I like, I mean, you just you almost can't do it without reading something. (laughs) It's unavoidable. But, you know, I think that it really enhances your understanding of your horse and also how training works. And I really only think it can benefit you. And trust me, I know reading nonfiction and how-to guides is it's can be dry. But if you can, sorry, I'm going to move and my chair is going to yell at me. Oh my God, I'm hitting my knee on everything. Um, but if you can convince yourself that, you know, it's about horses, it's interesting, and it's going to um, give me a really strong understanding and a much higher propensity of success uh, to do this, then maybe you'll motivate yourself. I also on my website have a list under the positive reinforcement tab called uh, positive reinforcement 101. And I kind of tell you what you need to do in the beginning to get started, like the bare minimum. So check that out if you are interested at my, you know, beginner book sections and things of that nature. But essentially, it's it's just a difficult process because the unfortunate reality is when you get started, you're just going to mess up. It is just the way of the world. You know, you can't expect to start out and be at the same level you were if you have been riding with negative reinforcement and traditionally for a long time. For me, it was a really hard adjustment because I started out, um, you know, in the eventing world and I had competed for almost a decade in eventing and brought several horses up uh, through the levels. And it was just my passion. It's what I did. And I thought that was going to be, you know, a lifelong thing. And then when Zoe had her accident and um, I decided to pursue positive reinforcement, I felt like such a noob. I was like, I haven't known anything this entire time. I didn't even know why the stuff I was doing worked. And only now through trying to do something else, have I learned why it worked? And that's not to speak for everybody that trains and rides traditionally. A lot of people do actually know um, (laughs) what they're doing and why it works. But, um, you know, all the people that I rode under and clinicked with, they never explained those things about um, operant conditioning and learning theory and things like that. So again, not to say that there's nobody out there that does, just most in my experience do not. So it is really, really crucial that before you run out to your pasture with your horse and start clicker training, that you have taken the time to educate and inform yourself because it you don't realize how much goes into it beyond your clicking and feeding a horse for doing things that you like. There are so many little skills that are just not something you develop anywhere else. And so you have to give yourself some grace and be sure that you you practice. And sometimes that means that you are standing, you know, in your house with your treat pouch full of treats and you've got your clicker and you just stand there and practice pulling the treats out as quickly as possible, you know, um, so that you're not having to hunt through and you get a feel for being able to grab treats. I, I compare it to like... If you've ever had to make up your horse's feed before, you know that when you when you first start, you are very slow and you have to constantly dump out or add more feed to the scoop because you you don't know the feel. Now, when you learn more and you've done it more frequently, like for me, I remember this happened and it used to take me forever to make up feed when I would uh, feed for my old trainer. And then it got to where I could just like reach in and scoop out an accurate amount every single time because you learn the feel for it. And 
dispensing treats to your animal works the same way. You, It's muscle memory, and once you get it down, it gets really quick and efficient. And that's not to say that, you know, you need to be rushing around and fumbling and scaring your horse, trying to feed it as fast as possible. But um, in the beginning, when you are pairing the clicker with the food reinforcement, it does need to have a closer window. But I would not preload, which is when you like have a handful of food and then you cue the horse and then you click and then you feed them from your hand. I keep my hand out of the cookie jar until after I've clicked and then I reach for it. Mostly because in the beginning with horses that are new to it, it can be distracting and confusing because you're trying to get the horse to stay out of your space. But if you have a handful of food there, it's I would be willing to bet that their prior reinforcement history would be screaming at them to reach towards you and nudge you for the food. Because that is why horses get muggy or in your space, because they have been reinforced in the past for doing so. Think about the way that they graze naturally. They nose around on the ground, they nuzzle and they reach or they bite and they get food. So that's that's the behavior that they have installed from nature. So when you have food, you can't expect any anything else. You have to then teach your horse how you would like him to respond around food. And for me, that is to stand quietly and still and relaxed with um, his or her head in the center of the chest so that, um, you know, they're out of your space, but they're in a neutral position. And that really helps communicate that, um, you know, you don't want that mugging behavior. And you have to be really diligent about it in the beginning because you're trying to replace that mugging behavior with this new, not really intuitive one for the horse. And you have to create a really strong reinforcement history. Because if you remember from the previous episodes, that all behavior has a perfect a purpose and everything is driven by reinforcement history. If we're really oversimplifying the animal, they're not machines, but you know. People even do things that are highly reinforcing. I don't go to my cabinet for a drink. I go to my fridge because that's where my drinks always are. And if I suddenly changed it, it would take me a while to break the habit of opening my fridge and maybe walking to my room to the mini fridge or something like that. It would take a minute to get rid of that muscle memory habit. So give your horse some grace as well and be sure that you are intentional about feeding them and you continue to feed them out of your space. And yeah, so I would just say not to have food preloaded because like I said, if it's in your hand, then it's it's almost a cue for, in fact, it probably is the cue for them to um, engage in that mugging behavior because human has food, I have to mug in order to get food. So if you change that, eventually you'll get to the point where you can have food in your hand and your horse will not mug you. So that's the goal, but it takes a while to get there because like I said, it takes a while to install a new reinforcement history and to make it stronger than the old one that they've lived with their whole lives. And that's the goal of all of this. We That's the goal of all training in riding. You know, you have to make it more reinforcing for the horse to be collected and engaged and carrying themselves properly than the way that they go around in the pasture or the way that they compensate for the weight of a rider. You have to train those things and it takes time to build that muscle memory, that mental understanding, things of that nature. So be patient um, and make sure that you are informed when you start because like if you don't know those things, then you're going to run into issues. 
and you need to have practiced, you know, maybe you have somebody that has a, a ball in their hands and have them throw it up in the air. And then when they're catching it or they move to catch it, click. And that way you can work on paying attention and clicking at the same time for the behavior that you are intending to click for. Because what happens with a lot of people when they first start out, their clicking is really delayed. They wait until the horse has done the behavior and then they go, oh, that was right. And then by the time they click, the horse has done something else. So you're not really clicking for the behavior you want. But as you get better, your clicking gets much more accurate and it becomes second nature and you don't even have to think about it. Um, Half of the time, since I use both a verbal and a a tangible uh, marker signal, half the time when I... uh, first get started in a session when I use the tangible clicker I make my sound and <laughs> because I'm I'm so used to being on it with that and um, you know just being ready to do it that sometimes it, they both come out but anyway that said be informed when you start and have a plan so if you go out to your horse and you're like I'm I'm gonna teach him how to target but you don't know how to break down targeting you don't know what you're looking for and you haven't really given it any thought you're not setting you or the horse up for success and um, there's this this quote that I love I believe it goes uh, failing to plan is planning to fail and I just there's nothing better than that I'll say it again okay failing to plan is planning to fail. So if you plan for success and you have a full understanding of what you're looking for, then you're going to be so much better off. Because if you go out there and you have no idea what you're looking for, you're probably going to miss it. And so it's a really good idea to write it down, even if it's on like a sticky note. And you just start with your goal behavior and then break it down in the smallest pieces that you can and then break it down even further after you've broken it down once and make sure that you haven't missed any steps. Like in order to target, the horse has to come near you, like break it down that far. And so when you do that, when you slow down and take the time to do that, your training is going to go way faster. Because when you start skipping steps and being confusing to the horse, then you're going to start dealing with frustration and confusion and running into some issues in your training that you're going to have to go back and rectify and it's going to take longer. So if you do it right, it will go much faster. And I have confidence in all of you that if you have listened to all of these episodes, you are obviously dedicated and diligent enough that, you know, I have no doubt that you'll be able to do it. And it only takes a couple minutes, really, to sit down, you know, right when you get to the barn, grab a piece of paper and break your behavior down, do it again, and then come up with another way that you could approach the same behavior. So that is my my spiel on that. So some other things that can go wrong with you as a trainer is the patience thing. You know, you have to make an adjustment to your expectations because training with positive reinforcement is very different from training traditionally in a lot of respects, but primarily in the speed at which you get a result. Because when you work with positive reinforcement and, you know, most of the time your horse is going to be at liberty, especially in the beginning, then you can't really tell the horse where you want them to be by manipulating them physically and I don't use manipulating badly but like you you can't put them where you want them to be and then release and be like that's this is where I want you to be this is good um so you have to tell them through a different way so you're approaching it backwards from the way that you approach it with negative reinforcement so for instance in negative reinforcement in getting a horse to um 
I don't know. Well, what's a good example? Maybe to turn. So you start with the cue. Your cue is going to be pulling on your right rein to get the horse to turn right. And so you pull until the horse's nose goes in the right direction, and then you soften. And if the horse straightens, then you pull again. And then when the horse turns his head a little bit further, then you release. And then when the horse takes a step in that direction, you release, you know, things like that. Um, But you're starting with the cue and not reinforcing until you get the goal behavior. Ideally, you would do it the way that I explained, but a lot of people, I think, kind of just keep pressure on until they get the full turn and then release, which it works, but it's more confusing to the animal because you're not really reinforcing what you want. You're kind of just It's almost like the equivalent of luring with a treat, like if you were to lure a horse onto a trailer with a treat. The horse isn't really understanding every piece of the behavior that is being reinforced. It's kind of just you're you're putting them there for them. And it I I don't really agree with luring or, um, you know, pulling the horse until you get it to where you want it to go, uh, because I think it's an injustice to the animal and you're really... um, I guess, not valuing their own intelligence, (laughs) which is a weird way to phrase that. But the horse can learn how to do it in a very subtle, slow, gentle, diligent way. Sorry, that was a lot of adjectives. But if you if you take the time, then the horse has a really solid understanding of what you're asking. Um, And as I was saying, with negative reinforcement, you know, you get the goal behavior at the beginning, pretty much. Like I said, with a young horse, you would probably keep pulling until you get the turn and then you soften. And then you put your leg on until they take a step forward. And then you take your leg off and reinforce that behavior. So you're getting the behavior all in one go. With positive reinforcement, you have to break it down further to tell the animal you're on the right track. Okay, let's go again. You're on the right track. Let's go again. You're on the right track. Okay, I'm going to make it a little bit harder now. You have to do a little bit more. I'm raising the criteria. Okay, you've got it. Good. Then repeat that a few more times and then raise the criteria again. Change one thing at a time. And when you do that, you have a horse that is really, really solid in their understanding. So um, like, for instance, with teaching a horse to pick up their foot. Uh, In the traditional world, a lot of people are taught to run their hand down the horse's leg and squeeze the tendons until the horse picks up their leg. So you might put your shoulder into them and lean on them and push them over and squeeze on their tendons until they pick their leg up. And then when they do, you take away the pressure and you hold the hoof. Um, So you get the behavior all in one go, pretty much. How you do it with positive reinforcement is a little bit different. So, um, you know, you might start with targeting and have the horse take a step forward. And uh, you click when they lift that leg. And then you click when they lift that leg again. And then you might put that on cue. And then you ask the cue. And then they they lift that leg. And then you start doing things like that. With Zoe, how I did it, since she already knew the traditional way, I kind of skipped the, the leg lifting step. Um, and just sort of touched her leg and she picked up her foot and then I clicked and then I worked on duration and having her hold it longer and changing to where I could hold her hoof while she held it up, things like that. Um, and it's, it's a slower way to break it down, but you have a horse that really solidly understands the cue and is not, um, 
acting out of avoidance because the reason a horse picks up their leg when you squeeze their tendons and lean into them is because they're trying to get you to stop. They're like, ooh, what's on my leg? Uh, that's uncomfortable. Get it off. And so they pick up their leg and then you release. No, 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 no. Cat's <laughs> clawing on my chair. No, no. That's why we have cat towers, sweet boy. I have been very diligent lately about putting him on the cat tower, but I'm recording right now. Can't do that. Um, anyway, so yeah, so in saying that, you just have to adjust your expectations because you're training differently now and you're thinking about how you're going to get your behavior differently. So if you don't make that mindset shift, then you run the risk of doing something called lumping. So it's where you are asking too much all at one time or you change too many variables. Oh my God, this is a leather chair. He's ripping it to shreds. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't like declawing and I, my chair is paying for it. I mean, I've got to work on the training aspect, little kitty cat. Okay, I picked him up and now he is in my lap. So anyway, lumping is when you kind of just do too much all at one time. And so that might mean that when you start asking your horse to pick up their leg, um, you know, you, you ask in and they lift up their leg and then you grab it and you hold it. And that's too much all at once. Or say with targeting. For some horses, when you start out with targeting, waiting for them to reach out and touch it is too much all at once. Some horses, and I've, like as I said in the beginning, it goes a lot faster if you click for the small successive approximations towards the behavior. The small little indications that they're going to do the behavior you want. So take it at its basic level. As I said in the first episode, when you present the target, you click for looking, even acknowledging that the target is there with their eyeball, with their ear, or maybe they tip their nose toward it. Any of those small little things click for and click it accurately. Don't wait until after the horse has disregarded it because then you've, you've missed the opportunity to tell them, yes, that was right. So, but if you, with some horses, if you wait until they actually reach out and touch it, it can be frustrating because they don't know what they're supposed to do. And it would be the equivalent of you holding out an object to a human and just saying, I'll give you this cake when you figure out what I want you to do. And they're like, I don't, I, I don't know what you want me to do. Um, I, do I need to walk around it? Do I need to touch it? Uh, like, what, what do you want? So um, it can be frustration inducing, it can be confusing, or it can just be um, too difficult. So you have to make it easy enough for the horse to be successful. And that's where the, the planning really comes in handy, because you need to understand what successful looks like. So break the behavior down into the smallest, teeny tiniest little pieces, and then reward for those. And like I said, it, it's it's tricky in the beginning because you're not used to thinking that way or approaching horse training that way. So have compassion for yourself and be patient. If your horse gives up and walks away, it's just information. It is not a personal assault on your training and it's not, um, you know, a dismissal or a you suck as a trainer. You know, it's it's just, okay, that wasn't working. What can I do better? Uh, and if your horse starts pawing or pinning their ears or getting frustrated or dancing around in place or tail swishing a lot, those are all indications that something is going awry. And it might be best if you just put some treats on the ground and walk away. I usually do quite a large pile. <laughs> and then uh, something that gives me enough time to get away, uh, especially at the beginning, because a lot of horses don't 
uh, like you have to train an end of session cue just like you train everything else. The horses don't know that that means you're done in the beginning. So you, I, I like to give them something to do until I can get out of there and we can make sure that they really understand it. So yeah, that is that. Um, it's just, it's really just about, uh, when things go wrong to just, like I said, take it as information and then reflect back on what's happened and work through it. I find that the best way to do this is to keep a journal. I've started doing that as I'm working with a client horse. It has helped me so much in reflecting on what's happened, what went well, what I need to work on, what do we need to do next time, and what did I learn about the horse, the person, uh, training, you know, things like that. Um, and what all happened, just writing out every little piece of what happened, recalling it, cementing it in my memory, and also, you know, providing something that I can look back on later. Maybe when I hit a lull in training and I start to feel discouraged, I can reflect back on where we were and how far we've come now. So that's, it's, it's just a really good thing to do, especially when you do hit those moments where you're like, oh my God, this is not working. Then you can reflect back on it, especially if you video. I would really recommend videoing. I did a lot of watching myself train and screaming at myself in the camera because I'm like, why are you clicking so slow? You don't realize how bad it is in the beginning because you are thinking about way too many things all at once, things that you've never had to think about. And now you're suddenly having to do all of this new stuff all at once. So looking back on it and setting goals and being like, okay, that's where I went wrong. I wasn't able to see it in the moment. I was too deep in thought and concentration that I, I missed that. Um, so give yourself some grace, <laughs> be patient and, uh, you know, give your horse some grace as well. Set both of you up for success by being diligent about planning and really, understanding what it is that you're looking for in the beginning. I think I could have mitigated a lot of the fallout that my training had in the beginning because I I just didn't keep a training journal and analyze what I was doing. And it is very, very helpful. A lot of my behavior training would have gone a lot faster if I had thoroughly sat down and planned it out because I'm out there and I'm just guessing, you know. So anyway... That brings me to the concept of loopy training. So loopy training is, I believe, Alexander Curlin's term. Could be totally wrong on that. Don't quote me. Um, but it is the concept that training works in a loop. So the the animal is behaving all the time. It's really important to understand that behavior never stops. Like right now, I'm sitting and talking. You are sitting or standing or cleaning stalls or driving and listening. We're both doing behaviors. And all behavior is, you know, kind of operating on reinforcement or punishment. You do the things that you like and the things that you don't are aversive and you try not to do them as often. For humans, it's a little bit more complicated because we do engage in things that we don't like because of, you know, the reprieve or, you know, the the good thing that comes out of it, even if the process itself is aversive. Um, and animals do that too, but for the sake of simplicity. Loopy training works under the assumption that behavior is occurring at all times, which it is. So whatever you cue is being reinforced. So whatever you cue, the prior behavior is being reinforced, I should say. So if you remember from the first couple of episodes, I talked about how cues are secondary reinforcers, just like the clicker is. 
So a quick refresher on what all that means is a primary reinforcer is food, water, shelter, things that the horse is born knowing that they like and they desire. Um, it also includes avoidance behaviors, avoidance of pain, discomfort, um, the cold, avoidance of being hungry, things like that. So you use a primary reinforcer to make associations. And with the clicker, you are associating that sound with the onset of food. So the same thing happens with the cues. They are, I think I said they're secondary reinforcers and I'm, that's wrong. They're tertiary reinforcers. So they're the third level ones. Food is the first. And then under that, you have your clicker, which is the secondary reinforcer, predicts foods coming. And below that, you have your third level or tertiary reinforcers, which is the cue. The cue predicts that, um, you know, they're going to have the opportunity to perform a behavior that is going to earn them a click and thus food. So you can see where I'm going with this, hopefully, that when you use your cue, you're reinforcing something. So this is kind of a complex topic and it might not really fit in the beginner stuff, but I do feel like it's important to know that sometimes you can accidentally create a, a loop that you don't like. So the most common one that you can train is with the manners lesson. So I call it manners. Other people call it the rules of the game or um, the grownups are talking. There are all sorts of different names for it. Manners, just it, it's applicable. So that's what I call it. Um, so you're training the horse to keep their head out of your space when you have food. What can happen sometimes when you're training that is the horse is standing next to you. The horse moves into your space and you cue for the head away or the head in the center of the body, hopefully. And so the horse puts their head there. You click and you feed. The horse eats. And then what does the horse do to get you to cue the behavior again? They come into your space. They are asking you to cue. So you can also shape that behavior. And uh, a lot of people call those start buttons or a baseline behavior. So it, it's... I had a conversation with Adele about this today, actually, um, because it was something that I didn't include in here because I kind of thought that it was too uh, higher level understanding. But I, even if you, you're not ready to fully like embrace the idea of it, it'll be in the back of your mind and you can revisit it later and read more about it. But whatever you are cueing, you're like whenever you're cueing, you're reinforcing the behavior that's happening at the time. So what I do when I teach manners is I cue the horse to move out of my space um, by shifting my shoulders away. And most horses I've learned um, recognize that and move their heads out of my space. And I click and I feed them. And then if they stay there while they're eating, I click again and I feed again. And if they stay there, I click and I feed again. And, you know, once they are consistent with that, then you can slowly wait a little bit longer and you can feed more. The The behavior you want the horse to use to indicate to you that they're ready to go again is I'm standing here in a calm, neutral position and my chewing has slowed down <laughs> pretty much. Uh, that's typically what I wait for when I am not quote unquote, installing a behavior. At the beginning, I am a food machine. I am just reinforcing the heck out of that behavior. I want it to be a really, really good thing that the horse really, really wants to do because they earn rewards while they're in that space. So what can happen if you don't do that and you wait for the horse to do it wrong, to come into your space and then you cue, 
You're building the whole behavior to be, I come into the person's space, they cue me, I go where I'm supposed to, I get food, and I go back into their space to get them to cue me again. So remember, the cue is a reinforcer in and of itself. So be thoughtful about that. And that might be something that you include in your training plans in the beginning. And you can take it way too far and think about it way too hard. But just if you notice that your horse is doing something every single time, that um, something's probably getting messed up in the loop, and it's not clean. And you want the loop to be clean. So let's say, for instance, I am working on targeting or um yeah, so I'm having the horse follow the target. I'm out in the field with them and I present the target. The horse begins walking and has their nose following the target and I click and I feed them and then I just kind of hang out. And then when I notice that they're slowing eating, you know, they're finishing up their snack, I cue again and we walk off. What can happen if you don't have a clean loop is you might have a horse that, um, like Zoe, I'll, I'll be honest, Zoe does not have a clean loop because, um, you know, unfortunately, the horses that you practice on in the beginning are often the ones that have some messy loops in the beginning. And that's okay. You can fix them later. Just try your best to mitigate them for um, lack of frustration's sake. So what Zoe does is she'll start walking forward and I will wait for her to stop so I have a clean loop and she will walk forward a couple steps and then she'll walk backwards and then she'll walk forward and then she'll walk backwards and I don't really recommend um, waiting until they stop moving <laughs> to cue because you you run the risk of not getting them to stop and then having a very frustrated animal. You might send them into an extinction burst where they get, you know, very frustrated and start offering a lot of behaviors. And they're like, what the heck, man? You were supposed to be, you know, doing this thing. We're doing it. Why are you not doing it? So what I would do instead and how I will work to fix Zoe's is that I will present the target and have her walk on and click for following it. And before I think she's about to start walking off again or moving backwards, I'll present the target. And this includes before they make a shift in weight backwards or before they make a shift in weight forwards. You want to cue before any of that happens so you're reinforcing the standing calm behavior. Or alternatively, if your horse has a cue like Zoe does for calm, where she lowers her head and stands with her head low, I could cue for that and have her do that in between so that every time she, um, you know, every time she gets rewarded for, um, oh my god, what is it? Uh, the targeting, that she knows that I'm going to cue her for a head lowering and just hanging out. And then I can click and reinforce for that. But also when you get good at, um, you know, all of your cues are really strong, then you can start using the cues as reinforcers. And that means that when your horse is, say you're working with targeting, let's, let's stick to this example. So you cue the horse for targeting, they walk off, follow the target, and you click and reinforce. And then when the horse is standing there and they're finishing up, you say calm, the horse drops their head and stands still. Then you can say, all right, target, and you present the target and have them follow the target. So you're telling them that they've done the right thing by using the tertiary reinforcer, the cue, and then that's how you create a behavior chain. I don't 
click for, um, you know, when they've done it right, I just reinforce with a tertiary cue. I'm not, I'm a big believer that the clicker equals food every single time. And I want that to be known to my horse, but I would wait to start using tertiary cues as reinforcement until, I mean, not tertiary cues, tertiary reinforcers or cues as, um, reinforcement until your horse is really clicker savvy, because again, that could be lumping and you could run into issues with frustration with that. So the horse is like, what the heck? I did it right. Why am I not getting food? So you have to be really careful when you start um, using behavior chains and you have to make sure your horse has a really solid understanding. And you also have to make sure that the horse has a really solid reinforcement history because just because they respond to the cue does not yet mean that the cue is reinforcing. So in explaining that a little bit deeper, that is to say that just because a horse responds to the cue does not mean that they have a really strong positive association where the cue itself elicits similar feelings to the primary reinforcer itself. So me saying uh, target and presenting it may not be as strong as clicking and reinforcing for um, the behavior. And it's arguable whether tertiary cues are ever um, as powerful as the primary reinforcers. I would argue that they're probably not as um, reinforcing, but you're also engaging the seeking system, which is in and of itself reinforcing to be in for the horse, but that is neuroscience and we don't need to get into that. But the point is I would wait to do that until you have a really clicker savvy horse because you don't want to accidentally punish them or make them feel like they've done it wrong. So the cue that you're using as reinforcement needs to actually be reinforcement. It's akin to using scratches as reinforcement to a horse that doesn't like scratches or doesn't know that they have a good outcome. I hope I'm explaining that well. <laughs> it's very technical, but I'm going to move on past that because it is it is muddy water, especially if you're if you're a newbie, but I hope that it made some sense. So yeah, so that's pretty much the um, trainer section. So I'm going to move into the food. I touched on this a little bit already, but the first thing that's really important when you first start training is that your your feed at which or <laughs> the speed at which you feed needs to be pretty quick. So it can be challenging when you first get started because you're not used to reinforcing your horse via food. So you need to practice it standing alone without the horse. So just practice reaching over across yourself or next to you, grabbing food and presenting it at arm's length every single time, or grabbing it, taking a step and presenting it, grabbing it, taking four steps and presenting it. So you just get the muscle memory down, you get the feel of it, you understand how much your hand grabs every time, because it's really important in the beginning that your speed is is pretty quick, because you want your horse to pair the sound of the clicker with the food. And if you click and it takes you 15 seconds to pull out the food, the horse is probably, it's going to take them a really long time to pair the clicker with the food. So I, I really encourage that you be uh, timely about it and practice it beforehand. And it, it probably won't take that long to just stand there and do it by yourself, though you might look a little silly. So, oops. <laughs> anyway, that's something I wish I had done in the beginning because I was very slow about it. Um, and yeah, so that can bring us to uh, frustration and all that that entails. So frustration is a result of something not happening for the animal that they want to happen or something that is really confusing uh, or something 
they they can't get to something they're failing uh you know as a human you can think of all of the instances in which you've ever been frustrated you're working on your math homework and you just can't get the right answer it's different on your calculator versus on your paper and it doesn't make sense so that can that can be really like a really bad emotional state to be in and you might end up grabbing your homework, wadding it up and throwing it across the room and screaming your head into a pillow, uh, you know, exhibiting all of these behaviors that are outlets uh, or assumed outlets. But it's it's arguable whether or not actually acting on your aggression is uh, it actually alleviates that stress and frustration. So I wouldn't recommend it. But horses do something similar. So when they get frustrated, like I talked about earlier you might end up with a horse that is now pawing or a horse that is dancing around in place. They're moving a lot. They're offering a lot of behaviors. Uh, you know, they might be swinging their head around, trying to find where it is that they need to be to be quote unquote right in order to get the reinforcement. So that also might produce things like tail swishing or pinning ears or scrunched nostrils or at extreme levels biting. And I think that's where people get a really big misconception around using food reinforcers with horses. Because what happens when you have food and your horse is acting on their natural ethological behaviors, that is what is intuitive to them, it is instinctual, it's it's already there. You don't have to train that. That is what they know to do. When you have food and they reach for it and you've decided that the horse doesn't get food if they reach for it, and so you punish it by moving the food away or you punish it by bopping them in the nose or pushing them out of your space. A lot of people, when horses do that, they'll like elbow them or punch them, bop them or smack them in the face um, and be like, get out of my space, horse. Oh, my God. And then they wait until, you know, the horse is out of their space and then they feed. That is not what usually happens, uh, the waiting until they're out of their space to feed. What usually happens is you have a horse that is in your space and you're like, oh, my God, take the food. And you just kind of like push it out into their faces while they're in your space. And what that does is reinforce that behavior. So if your horse is pushy around food congrats, either you or somebody else has taught them how to do that because they they would not be doing it if it wasn't reinforcing. Remember that all behavior has a purpose. It is driven by reinforcement and the motivation, you know, for that reinforcement. So if your horse consistently gets treats by being in your space, then the horse is going to keep being in your space. Why would he do anything differently? That's what he knows. And then, you know, what I see happen a lot is people, you know, the horse picks a bad day to do it and the person is, you know, a little bit more tense than usual and the horse gets in their space and they take it away and they're like, oh my God, get out of my space. And they withhold, which is negative punishment. And then when you give it back to the horse, they might grab at it because they're like, I don't want you to take it away. I need to act quickly so that you don't take it away from me. And what that can do is create that grabbing, biting behavior that you don't want. Incidentally, if you use positive punishment and you smack them for it, you might be creating aggression and the horse might get sent into the rage system wherein they get frustrated that they've not been able to get the resource that they're looking for and 
you know, you've hurt them and it's painful and now they're angry and they're frustrated. And so they lash out. And I, I just cannot see under what circumstance anyone would ever blame a horse for doing that, especially if they've been hit. They have every right to bite. If you can hit, they can hit. So I just keep it as a general rule. I don't hit my animals. and <laughs> Let's not do that. I don't like aggressive animals. And when you use corporal punishment like that, you are running the risk of um, them increasing in anxiety. I talked about in one of the previous episodes about a horse named Mac, who I strongly believe had been punished for his warning signs. So the danger in ignoring or blowing past or punishing a horse's warning signs, such as ear pinning or pulling their nostrils back or trying to move out of your space, get away from you and you restrict them, or when they pin their ears, you punch them or poke them in the side or something. When you punish those, remember that the purpose of punishment is to decrease behavior. So when a horse does something you don't like and you punish it, the horse learns that that behavior is not effective. They're they're not getting you to stop. In fact, they're getting you to be worse. So what happened with Mac, I, I think anyway, this is my theory. I have no way of knowing. But what I think happened with him, because he bit me once, and it came out of nowhere. And I am not a person that ever says out of nowhere in regards to horses, except for in his situation. I think what happened with him was that when he would pin his ears or pull his nostrils back or nip at people but not make contact is that he would get punished. So he learned that those behaviors were not effective and they hurt and they, um, you know, he might as well just escalate to 100 and bite you to get you to move away because when he bites people move away from him but if he pins his ears they bop him or they ignore it and they call him grumpy and say he's just being a jerk and he needs to get over it so when you tell a horse that they cannot communicate to you that something is upsetting painful frustrating confusing then you are seriously increasing your chances of getting hurt and uh, you know, I got the backside of that, the fallout from it, because he did actually bite me. He bit me on the on the wrist bone of my hand. And it's because I, I would strongly believe that he was punished in the past for um, warning people that he's about to bite. Because if he had warned me, I would have moved away. If he pinned his ears at me, I would have been like, whoa, no, uh, no, thanks. I don't want to get bitten. I'm going to leave. So and that would have been reinforcing for him, and he would have learned that he can communicate that. So that's kind of what we had to do through working together was me proving to him that I was never, ever going to lay a hand on him in an uncomfortable or painful way. And then those behaviors just disappeared. Like, he had a striking out problem, and ever since I worked with him, I have not... I never encountered him doing it again, and I haven't heard anything of the sort from his owner uh, now, so... You know, I think it was just a matter of letting him know that he is now free to express himself and he can tell us when things are uncomfortable or scary um, and he doesn't like it and we'll listen and we'll respect that unsure no answer. And then he doesn't have to escalate to 100 because that 100 is when people get hurt and it's very scary. So you know, that's that's where people have a real issue with positive reinforcement training when you use food, because people are under the impression that if you use food with a horse, it is a one-to-one -one that the horse will bite. And that's not the case. 
like I said at the beginning, you cannot teach people how to do math without math. You can't ha- expect a person to be proficient at solving mathematical problems if you don't use the math to teach them. With horses, it's the same way. You can't expect them to have good manners around food unless you use the food and teach them how to be around it. Of course, you could punish them enough to where they stop responding and they go into learned helplessness and they learn that nothing they do will be effective and then they just shut down and stop responding altogether. And then, you know, you could potentially achieve the same result, but it is very psychologically traumatizing for an animal to go through something like that. So I would recommend doing it the the Lima way and starting with positive reinforcement. Of course, all of this is assuming that you are doing it in a diligent and safe way, working in protected contact, especially with a horse that you know um, has a history of biting. Like with Mac, I had no idea <laughs> until he bit me. And then I was like, okay, duly noted. And then I worked with him in protected contact. Uh, for reference, he did this over a fence, so I was able to step away. Um, but even then, like, it's so concerning to me that he um, was still so threatened by me petting him over a fence that he bit me. And I, I, all behavior has a purpose. He's, it is not him being a jerk or him, you know, trying to, you know, dominate me. It's, he wanted me out of his space, but he didn't have any other behaviors available in his repertoire to communicate that to me because, he had been told that he couldn't pin his ears and he couldn't ask me to move away from him any other way other than to just bite me. So I taught him how to communicate that to me by listening. And when he did offer those behaviors, I went ahead and rewarded it and was like, okay, yes. And by rewarding it, I mean, probably it would probably be better to say reinforcing. Anytime he ever showed signs of being uncomfortable, I immediately backed off. And then he learned that he could communicate those things and that I would listen. So that is a long spiel about biting, but that is the primary issue that people have with positive reinforcement. And it is worth spending a long time talking about because it's just the easiest thing in the world to solve when horses are frustrated or anxious around food, which is a a big part of biting. So when you have frustration and anxiety and a high food drive, it's really important that you understand what you're doing when you start working with it. And, you know, I don't say... I don't encourage strongly that you educate yourself before you do this because only the smartest people in the world, the most educated can do this. Literally anyone can do this. All you need is a clicker and a treat pouch to do this. But you also need to take some time to learn. You don't just get on a horse and go jump a five-foot course. You have to take time to learn how to do it. The same applies for positive reinforcement and teaching your horse something new. Anytime you want to teach an animal to do something, you you can't just go out and do it. You have to know how or at least have a plan, some semblance of an idea. Otherwise, you're not going to get very far. So I really recommend taking some time to watch how other people train it and breaking it down as far as you can so that you're safe. I also recommend, extremely, extremely recommend starting in protected contact. The client horse that I'm working with um, which is really exciting, by the way. It's my first client. Woo, cheer. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just so thrilled about that, that somebody hired me to work with their horse in person for the first time. Uh, it's very validating and exciting to fix an issue. Um, but anyway, you know, I started how I do with targeting, but the horse was 
um, the owner caught the horse out in the field and was having an issue getting the horse to follow her up to the barn. And I was like, you know what? That's fine. We'll just work out here. The other horse in the, in the field weren't near us and weren't um, bothered by us being there and weren't all on top of us or anything like that. And I was like, we can just start out here. And I started with the targeting and it it just seemed very confusing to her because she kept trying to um, follow it and walk into my space and I wasn't able to communicate it clearly to her that everything was about the target. So, um, you know, after a while of working with her with that um, and she wanted to follow me, I was like, you know what, let's use this and let's go into this closed off area where I can work with her over the fence. And the owner was like, okay, dope, let's do that. So we moved into the enclosure and I started targeting her over the fence and she picked it up in five minutes, I kid you not. Like it, it went so much quicker that way. And I, I made a note in my notes about that because, you know, you're always learning. And I've had horses that I have been able to just go straight out with them and target train them. And I don't have any problem not starting in protected contact. This horse in particular was like, okay, we're doing this. I get food. Cool. And she just kind of kept walking towards me. And I would have to step back and get really creative in the way that I was asking her to target. And I was, I noticed I was having to help a lot. And I wanted her to operate independently. So in working over the fence, everything became about the target and it was very clear to her. So that was an example of adjusting to the situation, making it clearer for the horse so that you both can move along more efficiently. So, but I don't think that I did the wrong thing by starting out in the field because she was reluctant to come with us. And for, you know, it could be for any number of reasons. She might not have wanted to leave her herd. She might have not liked what happens in the barn. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe she gets brushed in the barn and she's like, oh, I don't like the curry comb. <laughs> I'm anthropomorphizing for comedic value here. Um, I don't know. The For reference, the owner is a very sweet sweet individual and I love them very much and I I I don't think that they're doing anything wrong but I I would attribute it mostly to the horse probably not wanting to leave everybody all their friends um so I was like you know what that's fine we don't need to you know (laughs) physically motivate her to move over there let's just work here and the owner was more than happy to give that a go so in saying all of that it is about being adaptable and working with the horse that you have in front of you and making sure that you are being diligent about how you're feeding. And I really, really, I don't know if you've got a theme here, but I stress starting in protected contact because if you have a horse that has a particularly high food drive, then when you start working with them just out in the field, they are all about that treat pouch. They are in your space and you have to maybe push them out or tie them up and restrain them. Um, or, and it's just really frustrating and stressful for the horse. So I find that if you go out to your training and you have a plan and you know what you're looking for so that you can keep your rate of reinforcement very high, um, and rate of reinforcement just means that how often you're clicking and feeding. So, you know, when I start out in protected contact, I have a horse that is hanging their head over the fence or a stall or something. And when they do the right behavior or some semblance of it, I click and I feed. And then I don't wait very long before I cue again. 
and then I click and I feed and I click and I feed and I click and I feed. And you can also adjust according to um, horses and their drive if they're very high, highly food motivated. Um, you know, sometimes feeding a little bit more can help. Sometimes with horses that I notice are getting a little bit anxious or nervous about the food and they don't, they're like, I don't know if I'm going to get it. Like I, I need it now. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll feed a lot in that moment. You know, if the horse looks at the target and I click and I feed, and then the horse looks at the target, I click and I feed horse looks at the target. I click and I feed. And I notice that they've started moving a little bit. They're dancing and they're kind of just really busy. Then the next time I present the target, um, you know, I click and I feed a handful and sometimes, especially uh, in that circumstance, I might grab and feed another handful. And then while they're standing there eating and they're still, I'll present the target again and they'll reach out and touch it. And then I'll feed slightly less that time. I might, it, it depends. Uh, you know, sometimes I might feed two big loads again and sometimes I might slowly bring it down. But when a horse gets nervous like that, it's telling, it's telling me that they're not getting enough or they're not getting it often enough and they're getting un uncomfortable or nervous about it. So be aware of how much you're reinforcing and adjust based on your horse. And, you know, it, it's the thing that I think people get um, misinterpreted in the beginning when they have a horse that has a really high food drive. They're like, oh, he's so annoying. He's very food motivated. I could never work with positive reinforcement. I'm like, no, 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 you're halfway there. Sometimes it's really difficult to convince a horse to work with positive reinforcement. Like Lexi, um, she doesn't like the big do more alfalfa pellets. We have to use a different brand of little skinny ones. I guess they taste different and she likes those better and she'll happily take those. So it, it, it depends on the horse and some of them are really difficult to find what they like and what's reinforcing to them. But, um, you know, it's you know, the horses that are really motivated. Like you've, you're halfway there. You don't have to worry about that. They're all about it. And they are very invested in the training. They're very excited about it. And they're going to be your best clicker training horses. So I wouldn't count that as a flaw. I would count it as something incredible that you can work with. But you do have to be um, diligent about it because you don't want to accidentally make that anxiety worse. You want to help minimize it and help make the horse feel comfortable and understand that you are not there to keep the food from them. You are there to give it to them and also that their behavior is correlated with getting the food. So, you know, you have to adjust those things um, in accordance with it and also be sure that you are not moving too quickly and raising your criteria too fast and s slipping into lumping. Because if you find that you are cueing something and the horse is not responding, and then all of a sudden the horse starts exhibiting all, the, all of these nervous, anxious behaviors, um, it's probably a good indication the horse is confused, they're getting frustrated, and you skipped something. So, you know, say you go from horse looking at target to horse touching the target and they start moving and they're not they're not getting it. What have you missed? What went too fast? How can you indicate to the horse that the right behavior is to touch the target? What's the smallest piece of that? Okay, so they've looked at it. Now they need to turn their head in that direction. Now they need to put an ear on it. You know, things like that. Small little itty bitty behaviors. Click for that and then you'll go much faster and you will increase your rate of reinforcement and you will decrease the horse's stress and anxiety. 
And I want to say that this is the beginner stuff. So don't be turned off by the amount that you'll have to be feeding your horse in the beginning. You have to, like, you have to explain the rules of this new game to them. You have to help them understand how this works, what it's all about, the same way that you would have to explain to a horse that's never been ridden or handled before how handling and riding work. So take it as if your horse is a completely green baby because they they are. They don't know this. And it's something totally brand new. And once you get more advanced, then, you know, the time increases between feeding and the horse also understands that the food is going to come. They're going to get it. They're going to get it right. And if they if they don't get it or they get confused, you're going to change something to make it easier for them and then they'll be successful and then you guys can proceed. That that all happens in there, whether it's at a conscious level or not. I don't know about that, but um, I don't have any research to back for or against it, but that's how it works to explain it in a way that would make sense to a human. So that is pretty much the food segment on making sure your feed speed is high, how to avoid frustration and biting and how to work with a horse that has food anxiety or a really high food drive. Um, You know, just be adaptable. Try things. If you find that feeding your horse a lot of food all at once doesn't help, hey, I want to meet your horse and we should probably talk. Um, And if you find that, um, you know, feeding more is making your horse even more anxious, maybe you change the behavior that you're asking for instead. Like if you're asking your horse to trot and you're trotting a lot and feeding a lot, you might accidentally be ramping them up. So you need to have your training balanced with, um, you know, some higher energy behaviors and lower energy behaviors. You have to teach your horse how to come down and relax. And that's why I encourage teaching these basic lessons and instilling your baseline behaviors as the calm ones. The first behaviors you teach do not need to be high speed chases in the field because that's not what you want your horse's default to be. If your horse doesn't understand something, they're going to revert back to the behaviors that have the highest reinforcement history. So for Zoe, when she gets confused and she's not getting what I ask, she smiles at me and she lifts her top lip because that behavior has the highest reinforcement history for her. So that's what she's going to revert to. If you teach those behaviors, uh, your beginning behaviors, the ones that you're going to do the most often, like I cue Zoe for smile all the time because people love it. It's good for pictures. And she loves doing it because it has a really high reinforcement history. So if that behavior that you teach in the beginning is rear or canter next to you, that's what your horse is going to fall back on. So please be considerate about that and do not Uh, teach those behaviors first. Teach the calm, relaxed, head in the center of the body, targeting, all four on the floor, mat training, things like that, and having your horse stand still and calm and relaxed around food. That is what you want your baseline to be. So focus on that when you begin. And then you can start branching off into different problems. Like if I had a horse that was uncomfortable in the cross ties and I didn't have a time limit, you know, I would start the way that I'm starting all of my horses. I don't skip steps because when you do that, it makes things go slower. But, you know, sometimes you can just use classical conditioning with things like that. But anyway, that's not what this is about. So what does the horse's body language mean and why is that relevant? So if you are at all experienced with horses and you have been listening to the past hour and 10 of this episode, 
Um, you can probably tell that a lot of this involves reading your horse. You need to be paying attention to where their head is at. Are their feet moving? Is their tail swishing? What position are their ears in? What position is their head in? Is it high? Is it low? Are their ears back? Are they forward? Are they out to the side? Are they relaxed? Is their nostril pulled back? Is it relaxed? Um, are they taking deep breaths? Are they shaking their heads a lot? Are they reaching down and scratching their leg over and over again? Are they pawing? You know, things like that. You know, I don't think it's talked about enough because a lot of behaviors like that get written off as hot or grumpy or antsy or, um, you know, the horse just has an itch. And some of those things, not any of them actually, except for the <laughs> might just have an itch. But if you're working with a horse and you notice that they're reaching down and itching their leg a lot or scratching it, I guess, um, then it's probably a good sign that it's a displacement behavior. So what that means is, say, for instance, you are, I don't know, the only example that I can think of is the one from the Language Signs and Calming Signals book by Raquel Dreisma. And I really recommend if you are not super familiar with the research behind um, equine behavior and what their little idiosyncrasies mean, I would really recommend that book. It is, it completely, like I thought I could read horses before and then I read that book and I was like, wow, I have been totally misjudging behaviors. And now I look at how horses react totally differently and it has only enhanced the training. So if I notice a horse is reaching down and scratching their leg a lot with their nose, then it communicates to me that it's a displacement behavior. So like I was saying about the human example would be if you were, um, you know, it might be something akin to working on a math problem and you're, you're getting confused and you don't really understand what you're doing and your teacher isn't really helping you and you might reach up and scratch your head. You're not scratching your head because your head itches. It's a displacement behavior. Um, and there's another one that Raquel Dreisman gives in the book, but I brought it up to one of my psychology professors who was talking about it, and he said that it was not a displacement behavior. It was, I think he said it was an appeasement behavior, which it might be, but anyway, and I might have it wrong about what uh, Dreismas says in the book, but um, to say you're at a bus stop and you go to this bus stop every single morning and some sketchy character comes walking up with a, I don't know, a hood over and they've got a bulge in their jacket pocket and they look like they're out to attack people. I don't know what a person like that looks like. I guess one that looks like they have a gun. I don't know. Um, am I allowed to say gun on Pongo? I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> they, um, you're, you're uneasy around this person. And when they come walking up, you look at the bus schedule. You know it backwards and forwards, but you look at the bus schedule so that you don't have to engage with them. You don't come off as threatening. You're just merely looking at the bus schedule. And your hope in doing that behavior, even if it's unconscious, is to communicate, I'm not a threat. I'm not here to bother you. I won't even interact with you if you don't want me to. And a lot of people look at their shoes or look at their phones or gaze off in the distance. Things like that are all um, behaviors that aren't for the purpose that they're usually for. So it's it's a similar thing. Like, okay, this might be a better example. Smiling at a person. You know, this sketchy character walks up and you smile at them. And they smile back. And now you've communicated to each other that you're not a threat. But you're not smiling because you're happy. 
So behavior is not independent from context. The context supplies intention and meaning. So with a horse that is repeatedly scratching its leg in a training session is probably not a horse that has a really itchy leg. It's probably a displacement or appeasement behavior. The same goes for horses that um, graze frantically, especially. Um, So for instance, one night, I think the mares and foals somehow miraculously opened the gate and got out. And that night when me and the guy that works here were putting them all back in the pasture, uh, Azula's mom was out and she was over by Zoe's field grazing, like, like ripping it out of the ground really quickly. And I think most people would look at that and they'd be like, oh my God, look at her. She's just eating away. She's not even mildly concerned by this. But after reading that book, I'm able to perceive it as a um, a calming signal. She's trying to calm herself down and alert to those around her that she is not a threat. And it probably also has something to do with the quality of grass that um, is not affected by having horses on it 24-7. So, um, you know, there might be some level of hunger in there, but it's, it's going to most likely be a calming appeasement type behavior so anyway behavior is not independent of context so you have to understand when behavior is a coping mechanism so a horse that's yawning does not automatically mean the horse is tired you know people yawn for various reasons they might yawn because somebody else yawned they might yawn because they're tired they might yawn because they haven't taken a breath in 10 minutes (laughs) they might uh yawn because they're the pressure is changing on the drive and they need to pop their ears there are a bunch of different contexts in which one yawns it does not automatically indicate being tired so for horses yawning is often a sign of stress And people will think that they are tired. And it it really takes somebody who has read about this stuff and paid attention to the context and not just written behaviors off as only ever having one cause. So things like yawning or stomping. Stomping is not always because of flies. Stomping could be because they're frustrated or they're angry, um, you know, or that hurt. So just I think I've, you know beaten the proverbial horse here (laughs) like you get it and so it's really important that you understand that and that book is the best reference that you can uh look at to learn about it i thought that book was absolutely revolutionary in my opinion uh dreisma also did an episode on the come along for the ride podcast if you want to listen to that but essentially you know you just have to pay attention to their facial expressions it can mean all sorts of different things a half-lidded eye might indicate stress and discomfort or pain there's something called the horse grimace scale um hgs and you can look that up and have a look at it sorry for the lip pop that was loud um (laughs) and so a half-lidded eye is usually like a oh grimace Uh, i hope you can feel the face that i made (laughs) um So there's things like that. Um, Leaving and coming back can often be a frustration response. So if you're working with your horse and they walk away and kind of do a lap and come back to you, it might be like, okay, I don't want to do this. And then, uh, okay, yeah, I want to go back and do this. Or it could be a frustration. I need to move. This isn't making sense. Oh, my God. Um, You know, just essentially resetting and trying again. And you can respect them for that. (laughs) It's a good idea. So sometimes when they do that, I take a walk with them and um, not while they're walking away from me, but when they come back, we take a walk. Um, But 
leaving and coming back usually indicates confusion, frustration, that sort of thing. Uh, licking and chewing is uh, well, in positive reinforcement is a little difficult to tell because they're they're eating. But in negative reinforcement and traditional training, and even sometimes when you're not training and the horse is just out in a field, like say for example, you are just watching your horses in the field and a really loud, noisy truck just flies by and it spooks the horses and they all take off running with their tails in the air and they are clearly distressed. So what happens in that situation is the horse has shifted into their sympathetic nervous system. And this is working in the autonomic nervous system. This is what controls your fight and flight responses. So, you know, when you get really afraid, you kick on your fight and flight and you go into sympathetic nervous system. So when you do that, your digestion shuts off everything that's not necessary for survival. Digestion takes a lot of energy and you need to, you don't need that when you're trying to run for your life. So it shuts off and coincidentally, so does salivation. Hopefully you can see where this is going. Um, and other things shut off some things like heart rate and respiration increase, adrenaline increases, cortisol, all of those things that, um, prep you to get away as fast as possible. So when the horses are like, okay, the truck is gone, I'm not really afraid anymore, and I think we're safe, and they'll stand, and they might huff out a big breath, and they look off into the distance, and then you might notice they start licking and chewing. A lot of people have said that this is because the horse is literally digesting the lesson that they're learning that it's no longer a threat, which I guess there's some... some substance to that or merit to it, I guess. But um, it is not the horse physically ingesting knowledge. Um, and it is not the horse learning in every situation. In that situation, the horse is um, coming down from the sympathetic nervous system and they are shifting into parasympathetic, which is your rest and digest state. So your heart rate is lowering, your respiration's returning to homeostasis, and your digestion kicks back on. And then you start salivating. And that increased salivation starts the licking and chewing. And that's what licking and chewing often derives from unless the horse is actually eating something. So if you see a horse doing that, it is usually going to be because they are shifting um, down from a stressed state. You'll see this a lot uh, with people that work with horses and desensitization via flooding or sacking out. So you'll send the horse into an extreme fear state, often done in like a round pin or at the end of a lead rope where the horse cannot get away, and they'll use a flag, and they'll just keep making the sound until the horse stops responding. And they attribute it to the fact that the horse is, um, you know, they've calmed down and they've realized it's not going to kill them. What actually happens is the horse learns that their behavior is not, it, like, no matter what they do, whether they fight it or they run away from it, nothing is making this thing stop. And then they shut in to learn helplessness. And it is very, very stressful and very traumatizing for an animal. If you put yourself in that situation and also decrease your level of cognition to an animal's level. So say that you are, oh, I don't know, um, you get tangled in a... Um, Oh my God. Like, okay, there's a big patch of rose bushes and it 
you fall into it and you're, it hurts and you're getting pricked. And every time you get pricked, you jump and you move around and you're trying to get out and, but you're tangled in all the vines. It's almost like the, the bushes just hanging on to you and you cannot get away and you, you keep moving and it's not working. You're fighting the bush. You're trying to run away from the bush. Nothing you do works. Eventually you're going to just give up and you're going to say that my behavior is not working. Nothing I do is working. I'm exhausted and I am just going to have to submit to this thing and get eaten. And so that is in my animal emotions course that I've been taking. Um, Carolina Westland is the one who is teaching it. It's, I think, I L L F. Oh my God. I L L I S dot S E. She's animal behavior consulting. It's called the animal emotions course. I'm sure you can just look it up um, with Carolina Westland. Um, but she talks about uh, this fears of, or the, uh, I guess, valence of fear, the core emotion. That's fear, all caps. So when the horse is extremely distressed, um, they are at like the peak. So let's say a low gauge fear response is perhaps just attention, orientation. They're looking at it and they're like, whoa, what is that? What is it? And then a little bit higher would perhaps be to run away. Even higher on that is maybe a fight response. Uh, maybe they kick into the rage system. And then higher than that, when they realize that their behavior doesn't do anything, and some horses won't go into the rage system uh, with sacking out, and they go from, you know, not doing anything, the person starts waving a flag or bouncing a ball off of them or what have you, and the horse is running and 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 running, and they get exhausted and they can't do anything and they're they're realizing that running is not making it stop there's nothing they can do and it sends them into learned helplessness and then they shut down they stop responding altogether and that is when you return to freeze so first is freeze orientation what is that and second is running third is perhaps rage and fighting system and then you finish if you if it just never relents and they learn that their behavior has no effect over it. They can't do anything. They have literally learned they are helpless. They can't do anything. Then you go back into the freeze response. The animal shuts down. It's very, very traumatizing. So like I said with the bush example, it's, it's an arbitrary example that I, I don't know that has ever happened to anyone ever. But perhaps since it's conceivable, it has happened. But um you know, it's, it's very stress inducing and you, you run a lot of risks doing that, particularly to self-harm because when the horse is in that level of terror, they really cannot account for your safety and you might get run over or you might get attacked. So it's just, it's not a good way to train. And it also has a lot of negative, uh, emotional fallout and lots, lots of problems. So anyway, what I am saying is that, We'll see a lot of times horses will lick and chew in that situation and people will say, look, he's learned it's not going to kill him. Oh, my God. He was such a drama queen about that. Right. Um, what's happening is the horse is shifting out of the sympathetic nervous system and their salivation is returning, even though they are still in a distressed state. But because they've kicked into learned helplessness, it is just a total shutdown of emotional and behavioral responses. This also happens with horses when, um, you know, 
Like if you've ever been on a trail ride and you can't get your horse to cross the little stream and they, um, they're moving all over the place, they're tossing their head, they're trying to turn around or rear and go back and you just won't let them and you keep kicking and steering and then eventually the horse stops and they quit moving and they just stand there no matter how hard you kick or how hard they pull, you pull, they won't move. Your horse is in a freeze response. It's not being stubborn. It's not being a mule. It's not, you know, challenging your authority. It's in a freeze response. It doesn't know what to do. Everything it's tried has failed. Some horses are easier to put into learned helplessness than others, but regardless, it is something that should be avoided at all costs. It is extremely abusive to put your horse into learned helplessness, and I will stand by that opinion till the day I die. And that's not to say that if you have ever done something like that, please hear me on this. It is not to say if you've ever done something like that, that you are a horrible, terrible, awful person and you, you suck, (laughs) you know, um, it is, it is what you have been taught. It's what 90% of the equestrian community does. And you can't do better until you know better, especially when your authorities, your educators, the people that you look up to, to tell you what to do are the ones that are doing this. You can't, like when you're learning, you can't do anything else. So give yourself some grace for it. I am not here to attack you and tell you you're a horrible person. But once you know better, you can do better. There are so many alternative ways to desensitize a horse. It works very similarly to target training. And um, you could either do that or you could classically condition it. Um, You know, you could engage the seeking system. There's so many things that you can do to help a horse, um, you know, overcome fears without essentially beating them with the object until they give up. So that was a long tangent, but I think it's it's worth, (laughs) worth considering. So all of that to say... How do you know if your horse understands you? That um, That is a tricky question because it it's largely behavior and response dependent. So if you're cueing for a behavior, what... Okay, how do I want to explain this? So when you cue the horse for targeting and you hold up the target stick and they immediately go to touch it, that's a pretty good indication that they understand targeting. And if you hold up your fist and you say, touch... And your horse looks at you like, what? <laughs> you know, uh, then the, oh my God, I forgot to back up, sorry. So you hold up the cue or the target and you say touch and the horse touches it. And then you hold up your fist and you say touch. The horse might not know what to do. They're like, that's not the target. That's not what I'm supposed to touch. You've told me that touching your hand was the wrong thing to do. So I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that would be a good indication that your horse is not understanding. And if you are cueing your horse by pointing uh, at their leg and they lift their cue, they, they lift the leg sometimes when you point, then, um, you know, you change sides of the horse and you point and the horse doesn't lift the leg and they just kind of look at you like what they might not have generalized it to you being in different positions you standing in a specific position and pointing at their leg might be the cue so using generalization and stimulus control to help make sure that you pointing is actually the cue is something you can do um there's just a, there's a lot uh, to help you check if your horse is really getting it. And the best way to do that, I think, is to check the response speed when you cue is the horse doing it. 
when you change positions, will the horse still respond to the cue? That's working on generalization. That's not so much understanding, but that's having your horse understand at least that when you're in different positions, that same cue still applies. And that way you'll be able to take it to different environments. Because remember, when you change anything, the um, you have to generalize the behavior to it. So for Zoe, when I taught her hip targeting, she did it perfectly out in the field. But when I stood on the mounting block and asked her for hip target, she was like, what? <laughs> she didn't do anything. And if I asked her for hip targeting in the arena, she wouldn't do anything because I hadn't generalized it to that environment or to me standing above her yet. So those are those are some things to consider and make sure that you're only changing one thing at a time. You're not asking for too much. You're not lumping. Um, and consistent and pretty quick responding is a good way to make sure that your horse is understanding what you're cueing. If the horse is slow to respond and, uh, and you know, you didn't cue them while they were chewing or looking off in the distance at the cows running by, um, you know, it's probably uh, a good indication that they're not getting it. So that leads me into, that was an interesting sound. <laughs> that leads me into the horse saying no. And how do you respond? So your horse might understand, but what if they say no? I am a, a firm believer that unless it is an emergency, you know, in an emergency, you have to do what you have to do. Okay. We're talking about training scenarios and all of this, right? We're setting the horse up for success and you've done everything you can and the horse says no. Okay. Now what? So let's take the hip targeting example. I have taught Zoe how to hip target. I've generalized it to all the environments and now I am going to get on the mounting block and ask for the hip target. And so I ask and she doesn't do it. In fact, she just walks away. That is a pretty, pretty clear no to me. She's like, no, you're going to get on me. No, I don't want that. I don't like what riding involves. Uh, my back has kissing spine and your saddles don't fit. No, human, I do not want you on my back. Go away. Uh, or she might offer an alternative behavior and say, let's do this instead. This has a high reinforcement history. I think it's a good idea. And I don't want to do that thing that you're asking because I don't want that. Uh, you know, so different horses will give you different things, especially depending on their repertoire of behaviors. So in that instance, Zoe might smile at me or she might um, leg yield away from me. Uh, leg yield is a weird thing to say about a horse that you're not mounted on, but side pass, I guess, whatever. Um, so she would, she would maybe offer a different behavior or she would leave and be like, no, you're not getting on or just not respond. Even though I know she knows the cue and I know that I've generalized the behavior, but she doesn't want me to get on. And sometimes this doesn't happen until, uh, you know, you cue and the horse, uh, swings their hind end over, you step on the mounting block, you cue again, they swing their hind end over and then you get on them and then you click reinforce and you get off and then you cue again and then they won't do it. Because now they know that you're going to get on and they didn't like that. So there are a bunch of different ways that you can approach that. And that unfortunately is beyond the scope of this episode on how to, you know, help your horse be comfortable with riding if they don't like it. Um, but obviously the first thing to do is check for pain. Uh, if you have ever existed in a body ever, you know that bodies often have issues and sometimes they hurt and sometimes... Also, horses have bodies <laughs> and it hurts. And if they have kissing spine or a, a rib out 
or their foot hurts that day, but they're not quite lame. So maybe you don't notice it and then you ride them. And then the next day they're like, no, you're not riding. It's a pretty good indication that something has gone haywire and you need to investigate and figure out what's going on. So, um, that is, that is how I handle a horse that says no. The first thing I do is ask why, why is the horse doing this? And my answer is never a personality attribute because it is extremely unfair. In my opinion, if a horse walks away, when you cue for something that predicts you getting on that you say, oh, he's being stubborn. He's being such a jerk. He is being obstinate. He's being dominant. He's challenging me. He, um, you know, is being sassy or hot. All of those things are not behavioral explanations. All behavior has a motivation. And unfortunately, horses, I, it's just not supported by any evidence that I have ever read that horses deliberately choose to do things that often lead to punishment uh, out of a personality defect. So I would say that a horse that is walking away and saying no is either confused, frustrated, or in pain, or is afraid, feels threatened, scared, like all of the things. You know, there are endless explanations that have much more um, substantiated (laughs) claims. There's a lot more evidence to support that, especially based on ethology. Horses are flight animals if they are in pain you know, they're going to be even more flighty if they um, feel uncomfortable or they don't want something. They're probably just going to leave because that is in a horse's nature. They're not really fighters. It's not something that is their first response if they have been allowed to express the flight response. So I would say that, um, you know, a horse that leaves is probably experiencing either pain discomfort, confusion, frustration, or, um, you know, just general wariness. They're like, I don't know what you're going to do when you get up there on my back. I don't think I like that. Uh, how about we do this instead? You know, a lot of horses, especially clicker savvy ones will just offer something else and be like, this is a better idea. And I have to respect it. I do. It's, it's good problem solving. And that's what you're doing. You're building an animal that solves problems and is a thinker and engages in your training, like to the max, because they are willing to participate. And that's the biggest thing about a horse that says no. In the beginning, especially if your horse has been trained traditionally and has a history of punishment or a history of just being told what to do, and if they do something wrong, then they face retribution for it, then you, like I said in the last episode, A, you have an animal that is very afraid to respond for fear of being wrong because they don't want to be punished, and they also don't know what to do. They've never been taught that they can just behave and then they'll get reinforcement for it. They've always been told or put in a position by being pulled or um, pushed, any of those things. So, you know, it can be daunting, as I said in the last episode, to a horse to just behave. (laughs) And, And I don't mean behave in the sense of like being good, but in the sense of acting, doing things and guessing. So you build a really strong problem solver when you allow horses to behave and think and have an opinion about things. And I, it might be anthropomorphic to use um, opinion in this situation, but for the sake of clarity, you know, for basic understanding, 
an opinion about things. If the horse says no, I respect it. And I say, okay, why? Is it because of a past association with this thing? Is it because they're afraid? Is it because they're in pain? Is it because they're confused and they don't understand what I'm asking? So all of those things run through my head and I do... Sorry, that is my alarm. I do process of elimination and try to figure out why they're telling me no. And, you know, sometimes with things like with Zoe... If I never treated her kissing spine, I'm never getting on again. She's going to keep saying no, no matter what I do, uh, unless I use a really high value reinforcer. And then she has to choose between the reinforcer that she wants so badly and doing something that hurts. It's kind of like you have to mow your lawn in order to get $20 from your parents. You really don't want to. It's very hot outside. It hurts. You have a twisted ankle, but you, you must mow the lawn because you need that $20. So you know, it's not comfortable and you have, you're put in a difficult position where you have to make a choice that is uncomfortable. And there are worse examples of that, but that is the one that came to my head. So those are things to consider. And when your horse, think, think about it this way. I think the most powerful thing I ever heard uh, was from Mosey Truitt about this subject. I mean, was, and on her In the Spirit of the Horse podcast or In the Spirit of Horse podcast, she talks about giving the horse's choice and having a horse that says no, because if you only ever blow past their nose and force them to do things, you're never going to get a real yes. Think about it like humans. If you coerce somebody to do something every single time, you know, say you, um, I don't know. Okay. Say that you have a friend that, um, you know, you're like, hang out with me and I'll pay you. And your friend hangs out with you and then you pay them. And then you say, hang out with me and I'll pay you. And you, you instill, instill this in them. And then, um, throughout that process, you're never going to know if they're hanging out with you because they like you or because they want your money. So, that's kind of what happens. I think a lot in more coercive training and that's, that can fully encapsulate clicker training and positive reinforcement. Like I said, if you use a high value reinforcer to coerce a horse to do something that they're very uncomfortable with, instead of going back and filling whatever hole is in the training that is making them uncomfortable or in their health and not addressing that and blowing past it, um, then you are creating a situation where your horse is not able to give you a real yes. If you allow the nose and you respect them, then when the horse says yes, they're doing it because they're choosing it. And that's what happened with Mac, the one that I was talking about who was initially quite dangerous. Um, and I, I have, I'm, I'm afraid to talk about that because of the way horses are perceived. But I want to be clear that he was only dangerous because of his reinforcement history and his fear of humans. Once I proved to him that through our reinforcement history together, that I had a consistent history of never punishing him. I had a consistent history of teaching him exactly what he needed to do in order to earn reinforcement. And if he got uncomfortable or he wanted to leave, he was free to do so, free of punishment. And if he tried, he would get reinforcement. That is the history that we built. He understood that. And that falls under the umbrella of what we call trust. If you want to analyze it behaviorally, you know, there's a lot more that goes into it. But he had faith and trust in the in the history that it would keep happening. And so, you know, through that, he learned that 
you know, I was not going to hurt him and he was going to be good. And that is, it's just so difficult to talk about that because of the way dangerous horses are perceived as these assholes that just need to be put down because they have a, a, a mental defect when it's, it's usually an unfortunate result of, um, you know, how they've been treated and what they've learned. So if you can teach a horse that when they say no, no nothing happens, you know, and then think to yourself as your horse has left you, what have I, what, what can I do to make this better? What went wrong? And what do I, what can I improve on? How can I make this clearer to them? How can I make it worth it to them? Is it something that is potentially painful for them? Is it, you know, the endless list of questions that you can ask yourself and reflect on, you know, go through all of those things and find out how you can fill the hole. And it's trial and error because you can't ask the horse. But when they are able to say no, you're getting the closest thing you can get to asking permission. And it is asking permission, but the closest thing you can get to asking them like, is this okay? Do you want to do this? Does it feel good? Like, you know, are you uncomfortable? Does that hurt? You you open the line of communication even further when you allow the horse to say no. And it also gives you time to be like, okay, well, you know, my horse usually responds to this cue, but now all of a sudden they're moving away from me when I come at them with the saddle. I wonder if they slipped and fell and now their back is a little sore. I wonder if they strained it running around last night. I did hear them, you know, like something like that. There are endless explanations, but when the horse is not responding as usual and they have always been given a choice and then suddenly they start saying no, it's a pretty strong indication that something has happened. And then you're able to jump on it and be like, okay, I need to call the vet or I need to... Um, you know, go back and reevaluate our last training session and see if something went wrong. Uh, were there any signs that I missed that upon reflecting or reviewing the footage that I could catch? All of those things. So that's how I handle that situation. I'm feeling very long-winded tonight. I, I hope I'm being thorough and not just overly redundant. Um, and perhaps saying overly redundant is redundant. But I try to keep wording things differently so that maybe one will make more sense than another. I don't know. That's neurosis. Um, but anyway, so if your horse walks away, do you just let them leave? Or do you follow them? Or do you keep cueing? Or do you shake your treat pouch at them and get their attention? Do you whistle? What do you do? I just say, hang out. If your horse walks away from you, and it usually happens when you cue something, and they leave, uh, I would just hang out. I wouldn't pursue them or put any, um, you know, it's hard to discuss pressure that way, but it is pressure. You know, if your horse is choosing to leave you and you follow them, imagine like your significant other has frustrated you and you walk away and they keep following you. You know, that is, it is a, a form of pressure. So if you do that to your horse, you're not really respecting their choice. Of course, this is different in a training situation versus an emergency. I feel like I, we got that at this point. So I just wait. I don't pursue them. And sometimes, um, you know, if the horse just goes back to grazing and they start eating and it doesn't really seem like they're going to come back, um, you know, I might just leave a pile on the ground and leave because, you know, it could be a sign that you've extended the, the session too long and they're tired of thinking and it's, it's getting too hard to think and process. So, you know, I just, I'm like, okay, we should probably call it a day. You're right. And, um, other times they'll leave and come back and I just wait. And I use the opportunity to really analyze the past, 
I don't know, five, 10 minutes and be like, okay, what happened? What, what just changed? What got, you know, did I do something wrong? Did I increase the criteria just now? And that's what confused them. Did I make it too difficult? Did I go for too long? How long has it been? <laughs> you know, I start asking all of those questions and uh, allow the horse that freedom. So like I said, when you do that, you will start getting genuine yeses. And at the beginning, when you offer the horse a choice, if if they have had a prolonged history of, you know, having a rider that's not so great. So say you, you get a brand new horse and you want to start clicker training with this horse and you start it and they just kind of seem uninterested. And eventually when you they realize you're not going to pursue them when they leave you, they're going to choose to leave you because they're like, humans do not do good things. I did not like my last owner. This owner is no different. Every person that I have had has done things to me and made me do things that are uncomfortable, painful, strenuous, what have you. I didn't enjoy it. So no thank you, human. So you you allow the horse to leave. And eventually, over time, and some it depends on the horse, it may take some time. And eventually, you'll end up with a horse that realizes that they can leave, they have a choice. And then because they have that choice, they have control, and they have freedom, they choose to stay with you because they are safe, and they are free, and you predict good things now because you've done all this wonderful clicker training work that engages their seeking system, it makes them feel good and sated, and they they love it. So, you know, it, there's a lot that goes into this, but that is why I'm so passionate about it because there's so much to learn and it is just wildly exciting to me to feel like I'm I'm hacking the system here. I'm I'm understanding horses and I'm learning how they tick, how they think, all of the things. So, I hope that that makes some sense and explains why I say so. Um, so what do you do if your horse doesn't get it or is not responding? So, this is in the similar vein. I didn't realize how similar it was, but I think I accidentally covered this um, in a different question, but uh, I have some bullet points here. So if you have to force it, should you do it? So like with the example of say Zoe is moving away from the mounting block and I know she knows what the behavior means. So do I keep asking? Do I keep increasing the value of the reinforcer? So say I have hay pellets and carrots. So I tell her that if she moves towards me, on the ground that she gets carrots now. And then when I go onto the mounting block, she knows that I have carrots and she's like, okay, well, I guess I'll do it because I, I do want the carrot, you know? Um, so if I'm forcing her, that's an example of coercion with um, positive reinforcement. So a negative reinforcement example would be like if the horse is moving when you're trying to get on and you hold them in place, you have the reins tight and uh, you're hanging onto the saddle, you're not allowing them to move away. Um, you know, if you have to force them in order to do it, you literally cannot get on the horse unless you force them either the positive reinforcement way or the negative reinforcement way. Um, if you have to do it, should you, if you have to, I don't know, use a method that, um, you know, is coercive and it's not enabling the horse to have a choice, should you do it? That is an ethical question that only you can answer. My answer is a hard no, unless it is an emergency. It's a life or death situation. Somebody's going to get hurt. Um, that is the only circumstance under which I will force an animal to do something. Um, because otherwise, it is a training question. And the horse is not understanding something or is uncomfortable or is in pain. Blah, 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 you get it. So um, 
that's my answer. I say that if you have to force it, you need to um, take a step back, reevaluate what's going on here. Why is the horse responding? And if you catch yourself, you know, calling the horse names or labeling it uh, a negative personality trait or a difficult personality trait, it's probably a good indication that you are misreading the situation. You are anthropomorphizing the horse and you are attributing human characteristics in order to validate and justify continuing use of that force. Because if your horse is being a jerk and you are, you cannot get on and he's just, oh my God, he is such a jerk. He is being so bad right now. He's deliberately disobeying me. Um, then you, you're, you have a lot easier time forcing him to do what you want him to do. But if your horse is saying, ouch, please, oh my God, no, 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 no. If you sit on me, my back is going to hurt really bad. Please don't do that. Um, uh, you're not going to be able to force him to do something, you know? So I think it, it really helps you communicate with the horse better and also have a more accurate understanding. There is no scientific evidence to support the idea that horses, uh, have concepts of dominance or respect or, um, the ability to be spiteful or deliberately disobedient. Um, well, that one's a little bit more foggy because, you know, if they know the cue, then they're purposefully not doing it. It's not being disobedient so much as it is not responding to the cue because there's a more powerful motivator such as my back hurts and I don't want you to get on and that's what you're going to do. Um, so there's no scientific evidence to support that because horses do not have a frontal lobe like humans do. They cannot have... Um, like, I guess, ulterior motives for their behaviors. So please listen to science and not people who just want to label their horses mean names because, I don't know, I, I just, I don't understand that. Your horse is not your enemy. You do this because you love them and you enjoy them. So let's not call them mean names that justify doing not so nice things to them. Anyway, so if um, your horse is not getting it, or not responding, what what can you do about it? I would say slow way down. So, you know, if your horse is not understanding manners, it's possible that you have lumped and you have asked for too much all at once. You've increased your criteria too fast. All you need to do is just slow down. And maybe that means that you need to, um, you know, if you can't come up with a way to break it down while you're working with the horse, put a pile of treats on the ground, say all done, and then walk away and go think about it and <laughs> go right down and how to break it down and come up with a plan so that when you come back, you're able to continue. Uh, so slow it way down, break it into tiny pieces. And it seems like it will take so much longer because you have all these tiny pieces that you have to work with now. But think of it this way. If you had a human clicker training you, the more clues you get, the better you're going to be at solving the puzzle. So, you know, if you are putting together a puzzle on your table and you don't know what picture you're going for, you're probably going to have a really difficult time solving the puzzle. But if you have a reference image to work off of, then you'll be so much better at putting the pieces together and completing the whole thing. So it works the exact same in clicker training. If you don't know what you're going for, what you're looking for, what all of the pieces look like put together, what pieces you need to put it together, then you're going to have a really hard time solving the puzzle. And you and your horse are both probably going to get frustrated, confused, and decide this thing doesn't work and you don't like it. Um, so frustration is aversive. It is uncomfortable. So do everything you can to prevent yourself from getting frustrated. And then you will love clicker training. <laughs> so um, 
Another thing to consider is if your horse is still confused, step away, try to figure out what's going on and confusing them. And from my experience, it has been that I'm asking them some, they think I'm asking them something I'm not. And I need to try asking in a different way and be very clear. I talk about Zoe's hip targeting. And I think I talked about it in one of the previous episodes that um, I was trying to hold the target next to her and just touch her with it so that she would understand that she needs to touch her hip to the target. And that did not work. She kept trying to follow the target with her nose. So I held my fist out and I said, touch. And I, she would start to turn around and touch the, my, my fist because she understands when I present something and I say touch that she needs to touch it with her nose. So I would cue her for that. And um, then I would hold out the target next to her opposite hip. So if she turns left, I have the target on her right hip. So when she moves to turn, her butt bumps into it and I click and treat. Um, and then I slowly start fading out the hand target. And then when I present the target, she knows to move her hips. So that is how I changed it because the original way wasn't working. And I did that on the fly and it worked because I noticed what she was doing and I was like, I can use that. (laughs) Let's just reverse it. And I'll ask the opposite of how I'm teaching her to target. I was teaching her to move into the target and now I'm teaching her to essentially move away from the target to turn the opposite direction. But in doing so, she's incidentally bumping the target. So anyway, it worked. Uh, So try asking a different way, make sure it's clear. And if you can't do it on the flight, just take a step back. It takes a lot of time and being used to breaking down behaviors really quickly and figuring out how the horse is responding already and how you can use it to clarify to them what you want them to do. Um, So last couple of questions here. What do you do if you don't own the horse? Well, um, you need to talk to the owner. It's I am a huge advocate for showing people and not telling them um, what to do. Not like you need to just do it and then show them (laughs) and not tell them that you've been doing that this whole time. Um, But what I'm saying is that it goes a lot further when you are able to say, hey, look what I've done, then go to somebody and be like, you're doing it wrong and you should do it this way. And that might seem counterintuitive for somebody who literally has a podcast dedicated to that, but it is not so much about telling people that they're wrong, but just being able to provide um, alternatives. My chair is so squeaky. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, So if you don't own the horse, you need to, um, A, be well read about it, and B, be able to communicate it effectively to somebody else, and C, talk to them about it. So um, I messed up early on in my education about positive reinforcement because I I learned about it and I had a very juvenile understanding of it. Like I really didn't get it that much. And I called my trainer because I was really excited about it. And I was like, hey, I just found out about this method where you can use food to train horses to do things. And I had no idea that what I've been doing is negative reinforcement. And back then I had like a very purist stance and I was like, negative reinforcement, it's evil. Now I don't feel that way (laughs) at all. I I think that there are certain applications of it that certainly can be evil and cross into even positive punishment. But I think that it is... um, I think that it can be done well and kindly and in an effective Lima, least intrusive, minimally aversive sense. And I I think that you can ride traditionally. Um, In fact, one of my favorite people, uh, Warwick Schiller's more recent modern stuff is such a good example of really intuitive, kind, gentle 
negative reinforcement and I love his work and I highly respect him. I listen to his podcast. I've watched a lot of his videos and I love what he does. So that is my defense, <laughs> preemptive defense of saying that I, I at the time thought that negative reinforcement was the worst thing in the world. And so I call my trainer and I'm telling her this and I'm like, I had no idea. Did you know this? And she was like, no, when you release, that is the reward. That's positive reinforcement. And I was like, it's not though, because you are applying an aversive and the motivation for the behavior is coming from the desire to make that aversive go away. And she was like, no, but it's a, it's the release is the reward. And I was like, you're not, you're not understanding. <laughs> so I was like, negative doesn't mean bad. It just means, uh, you're removing something and that's what's reinforcing and she like I probably didn't even explain it that well honestly so my point in that little uh story is that if you don't know what you're talking about and you're trying to convince somebody it's probably not going to go very far uh, especially when you're trying to tell them essentially because what I did with my trainer was telling her that what we had been doing was wrong and um and I, I genuinely wanted her opinion on it. I wasn't calling her to berate her on it. And I don't, uh, you know, like, I mean no disrespect in telling that story either. It's, it's just how people understand it. And I wasn't explaining it well at all. And I put her in a position where she needed to defend herself, which is another big no-no. <laughs> like, do not accuse people and make them feel bad because it's not justified. People, I genuinely believe that people do not do the things that they do to their horses out of malice and because they are animal abusers. I'm sure there are a few sadists out there that do that because they like to hurt animals, but it is a very small minority of humans. Um, but if you like most people say that they love their horse and they genuinely do and they feel like they have to do the things that they have to do because they don't have another option. There's nothing else. This is what they've learned. This is what they have been taught. And, you know, there are results in some way, shape or form. And so, you know, don't put people in a position where they have to defend themselves because, like I said, it's not justified. They're not doing it because they enjoy it most times. It might seem like it, but it's usually a justification. So anyway, approach it delicately if you don't own the horse. You know, do your research and spend time learning about it. Don't be in a hurry to go rush off and do it. You know, you can use your time that you don't own this horse to spend you know, learning and educating yourself and you can keep taking riding lessons and, you know, your the way that you ride might change a little bit and that's fine. And you can, um, you know, just present it as like, hey, you know, I've been reading about this thing and I, I really want to teach so-and-so, the horse, how to respond around food. And I've learned this method and, you know, would you mind if I sent you a link on how to teach them to stop mugging? Because I know we both hate that. And this seems like a really effective way to teach them to stop. It's safe. So I won't get bitten. And then we can, you know, we can reward her and then she'll be, you know, how to, she'll know how to react around food. Um, things like that. Bring the person into it. Work with them collaboratively because you want people to feel comfortable and heard and accepted and not like you are telling them they've done something wrong or that they're stupid um, or that you're holier than thou. None of that is the point. And I'm not saying this to like teach you how to manipulate people. I'm teaching you or like not teaching might be a strong word, but I'm offering my experience because I have done that before and it doesn't work. It makes people hate you. <laughs> As they should. If anybody came at me like that, and they did in the past, I had a lot of clicker trainers tell me what I was doing was horrible. And I was like, 
screw you, dude. I, I don't appreciate you. And so, you know, if you come at people from a compassionate, understanding perspective, you can help them learn what you learn. And then maybe you'll bring somebody in who is another resource and they'll start learning and then they can help you. It's it's about building a community and helping people understand the science and make it more accessible because as at present in the horse world, it is not accessible. Most people do not even know that there is research out there on equitation science, behavior science. They just know what they know from their trainers and their experience. And anecdotal experience does have value, but um, if it's perceived through a... Um, a fictional lens, I guess, then it is, it has a high uh, chance of being a fallacy. That was a difficult sentence to get through. Apologize. So, you know, if you don't own the horse, you can talk to the owner about it. And if they tell you no, that's okay. You know, it is their horse. They are the ones who have the final say. You can respect that. And, you know, maybe you keep pushing, maybe you don't. And maybe you wait until you have your own horse to do it. And you use that time in the meantime to learn more about it. But, you know, if you if you approach somebody and you say everything right, you do the right things and you've tried to be nice and compassionate and they still don't want it, that's okay. You've done nothing wrong. You tried your best. And some people just are content with the things the way that they are, you know, and that's okay. It's often unfortunate, um, you know, especially if the horse is suffering. But if the horse isn't suffering, like I was talking about with Warwick Schiller, he's a negative reinforcement trainer, and I love his work. His older videos are a little bit more, no, thank you. Um, But he talks about it, and he acknowledges that he doesn't want to train that way anymore. He's learned, and now he knows a a better way. Oh my god, my cat just jumped on the table and scared me so bad. (laughs) Hi, Wally. Hi. Can you say hi? He says no. Um, anyway, so, you know, I really respect that in people that, um, are open-minded and willing to change and come around and be like, yeah, I did that in the past. I don't agree with it anymore. Um, but you know, everybody goes through the process and they learned and I've, I've, and they learn and I have learned that this works better for me now. So, um, you know, that is just, that's a stance that I have learned to take because it makes the most sense to me. It's compassionate and it doesn't make anybody feel attacked. So anyway, what if you don't have a stall to start in? There are lots of different um, places you can start. So like I started Lexi in the arena because she was paddocked with another horse who um, wanted to engage in the training sessions. And, you know, if you have practiced a lot, like say with your dog or something, um, and you've gotten pretty good at being a clicker trainer, Uh, You know, sometimes you can handle working with two horses at the same time, provided that nobody gets a resource guardy. Uh, And you can work through that, too. But I would not recommend trying until you are pretty good at clicker training because you can create a lot of issues with that. um, And you have to be really careful. But, um, you know, maybe you can set up a closed off area so you can build like a little uh, T-post and rope fence that uh, you can stand in or the horse can stand in and you can just kind of take them in there so that the other horse can't get to them and maybe you fence off a little part for yourself. I don't know. Uh, you can do it over their paddock if they're buddies. Like like I was saying about the client horse, we started out in the field because uh, the other horses just weren't that interested in interacting with us. So they weren't a problem. So I just did it out there with her. And then when I noticed things weren't quite going 
uh, as efficiently as I would like, I was like, okay, let's change it up. And that's what you can do too. You know, you can always drop some treats on the ground, uh, a pile <laughs> and be like, okay, all done. I'm going to go sit in my car and think about this for 30 minutes and figure out how I can do it again. Um, so there are endless solutions. Um, you know, you can even have your horse on a lead rope and take them up to a fence and then put the lead rope over the fence or tie them and then walk to the other side of the fence, untie them. And then you can hang on to their lead rope so that they don't run away. Um, but that they're not tied and they have the freedom to demonstrate to you that they would like to leave or not. Um, but you know, your horse is not going to just run off into the middle of the street or anything. Um, and that way you are still in protected contact. You and the horse can both step away from each other if need be. Um, there are lots of ways you just are going to have to know your environment and get creative with how you want to go about approaching the problem. And the good news is for most horses, you don't have to stay in protected contact for too long. Um, the client horse that I'm working with, it took two sessions. Like the first one, we weren't in protected contact for the first half. And I was like, this is just as not as clean as I want it to be. You know, there was the loop was messy. So then I went into protected contact. And thankfully, she followed us over there. She was very keen to keep going. And so we did it over protected contact. She got it. The next session, we worked more on targeting. We did um, the manners lesson. She picked that one up really fast, like lightning fast. And then by the third session, I'm able to be in with her without her being in my space all over me. She understands the rules. She knows about cue. She knows about the clicker. She knows about, um, you know, the rules that I will always bring the food to her. She doesn't have to worry about coming to me. It's more reinforcing to stay out of my space, all of those things. So you don't have to do it for long, but um, it is going to be entirely dependent on the individual. Some horses learn quicker than others. Some horses take a little bit of more time, a little bit more explaining. They need a little bit more reinforcement, especially your shutdown guys that are afraid to um, guess and you know, offer behaviors. So those are some things to consider. And those are some things that you can do if you don't have a stall. So um, also on the note of stalling, uh, I would really recommend not taking your horse like, like if the barn is empty, because all the horses are outside, don't bring your horse inside and put them in a stall so you can work with them. Unless they are just totally okay with that. Because for a lot of horses, that's really stress-inducing. You've taken them away from all of their buddies, and they're just stuck in a stall, and now you're holding up this weird blue thing. Some horses would be all about it, and they don't care at all. Other horses are like, this has broken my routine. This doesn't make any sense. Why am I away from my buddies? I don't want to be in here. Um, you know, so it, 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 read your horse. <laughs> you know, don't, don't do things. And you know, if you notice that they're getting stressed, take them back out and then figure out another way that you can do it. Um, you know, even if that's working next to their field, you know, uh, you can, even if you just got some of those T posts, the little plastic ones and you set up a little, a little circle big enough for you to be in that you can back away from your horse if need be. Um, and you just have your lead rope on it and you, you know, or attached to the horse. I mean, Sorry, I'm running out of brain power here. <laughs> um, so you just fence off a little area in front of your horse's paddock so he can still see his buddies and he feels safe and still a part of the herd. And then you can teach them like that. And then eventually as they get more progressive, they start understanding the game a little bit more. They'll get more confident and you can work on the separation anxiety, things like that. Whatever. Um, sorry, I can't see my question. Your butt's in the way, kitty cat. Zuko's like, no. You need to be able to pet me and not see your questions. I think I'm losing my voice, actually. 
Um, okay, so my final thoughts here are um, regarding things like guilt and frustration and all the emotions that come with training. So whether you like it or not, at all times, whether you click or train or you ride traditionally, you are training your horse because all behavior is driven by reinforcement. If you're just leading your horse from the pasture to the stable, you are training your horse. If your horse is pushing all over you and bumping you out of the way, it's because that behavior is reinforcing. You know, he could be wanting to walk in the grass and not on the rocks and you happen to be in the grass. Um, it could be because he finds it reinforcing to push you out of his space and he doesn't know any other way to tell you to get further away from him. Um, he could be trying to get somewhere and you're not listening and he is just barging all over you. Um, you know, all behavior has a motivation and it can be really frustrating when, uh, you have this sudden responsibility to be a trainer at all times. I get it. I've been there, but you have to understand that if you choose to work with animals, you're going to be a trainer. Now, even if you don't feel like you're a professional, you've just started, when you're riding, you are constantly reinforcing or punishing behavior. Um, you know, it's all a part of training. It's how we interact with each other as humans. It's how we interact with all animals. We are constantly training each other, sending signals, showing others what's appropriate, what's inappropriate with our reactions. Obviously, it's more intellectual on a cognitive verbal level for people. For animals, it's subtle, nonverbal. Um, sometimes very obvious things like, um, punishment or, um, using rewards and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's a big responsibility and it can be really frustrating and overwhelming, but anytime you're working with a horse, you are training them. That doesn't mean you're a good trainer. It doesn't mean you're a bad trainer either, especially if you're new. If you're new to positive reinforcement or you're new to horses altogether, you are perfectly perfectly validated in not being the best trainer out there. Everything takes practice. You can't expect to be good at something you've never done in your life before that you don't know very much about yet. And you don't have any experience. You don't have any practice. You know, it's going to be a little bit difficult to be excelling at it. And you'll have good days and you'll have bad days. And you'll have days that you're more mentally present and you're catching things and days that are a little bit rockier. And you just have to recognize that that is, that is the nature of training. And it's, it is a wild and wonderful ride because they're, you're learning the entire time too. It is a constant experience of gathering information and problem solving. I find it to be extremely rewarding, um, especially because the frustration balances it. All of those negative emotions make the positive emotions so much more potent and when you finally communicate to the horse and they, they just absolutely knock it out of the park and you can tell that they are like, hell yeah, I did it. And you're like, hell yeah, you did do it. It's like, it's just, it's so good. And, um, I just like, there's nothing like it. And the same thing goes for traditional riding. You know, when your horse nails that movement and you're like, yes, oh my God, you rock. It's, there's just nothing out there like it. And if you didn't have those days where things just weren't going well, you would just be like, yeah, cool. My horse is smart and he just knows things. You know, you take it for granted if you don't have a little bit of balance there. 
So appreciate the negative emotions that come with it. They are there only to enhance the good ones and to communicate things to you. If you find yourself getting frustrated, you probably also lack information. Maybe you just don't really know how to solve this problem. You don't know what to do. You haven't broken it down far enough. You don't have a plan. There are endless reasons for why you're getting frustrated. Maybe you've had a bad day and today's just not the day to train. Um, and so there are, there are endless explanations for your, uh, you know, your emotions and your behavior and think about how you can help yourself be successful as well. So with that, the last thing I want to say is again, if I have in any way in this episode made you feel guilty or bad about what you have done in the past or things that you still currently do, I want to sincerely apologize. Like I said, in the last episode, that is never the goal of this this podcast. It is only to educate and provide an alternative to, um, you know, an industry that really only has one set, one set of solutions for, um, behavior modification and, uh, you know, changing the problem behaviors and asking for things. So in doing this, I am explaining why I use this particular alternative and why I believe it to be the least intrusive and minimally aversive approach. So, you know, take it or leave it. I am not ad hominiming you. If you choose not to use it, that is fully your choice. The purpose of this podcast is to help you have options and have enough information so that you can make an informed decision as to what is the best way to work with your horse. Only you know. And if you just find positive reinforcement to be really frustrating and you absolutely hate it and it is affecting you negatively mentally, don't do it. You can use negative reinforcement kindly and you can, you can do anything you want with your horse. You don't even have to work with them. You don't have to explicitly train them. You can just go hang out in the pasture with them. It might be reinforcing. It might be aversive, but you know, that's something you'll learn too. And it just, I don't know. There's just, there's so much nuance to it. And I, I just really want to make sure that my concluding note in this entire series is that. I really, really encourage you to at least, you know, give it a shot and see what you can do and how much fun you can have with your horse doing it so that you at least have another tool in your toolbox so that maybe one day when you meet that one horse that has a really funky lock, you'll have the key to open it. And, you know, it's just another approach. And if you just don't feel like you like it, it's not for you. That's all right. But if you do, great. Now you know, and now you can use it and you are equipped to begin your journey, hopefully with this podcast uh, series. I hope that it's been educational and helpful and that those of you who already know it don't feel like I just did an awful job explaining it. In my defense today, I have had four separate hour to two hour long conversations and I also had a hour-long presentation that I had to give. And my throat is absolutely shut. Uh, so, you know, my brain is also probably not at full capacity functioning-wise. So, apologies. But hopefully a lot of this has made sense and it's been helpful. And I'm going to stop saying hopefully insert thing I want you to have taken away from this here. <laughs> Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Be sure to keep up with us, JedekWithEerie.com, and on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at JedekWithEerie and Equitheory. Uh, you can find the podcast on YouTube.
Please subscribe, dear God. I need it. Uh, anyway, I think that's going to wrap it up. So thank you guys so much for listening to the series, and I will catch you guys next Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs>